Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of The Informed Catholic. My name is Ned Jabbar, and this is going to be episode 140 of The Informed Catholic, episode 140. So if you like my podcast and you think I'm doing a good job, please subscribe and share. I would greatly appreciate it. So um, let's begin with uh, an opening prayer to the Holy Spirit. Come, O Holy Spirit, come, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, you instructed the hearts of those who believe in you. By the light and power of your Holy Spirit, grant us in the same, this same Holy Spirit to be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. So I have uh, another little prayer here, which I like to say. Divine Holy Spirit, love of the Father and of the Son, through the hands of Mary, your most pure spouse, and upon the altar of the heart of Jesus, I offer you myself today and every day of my life. I offer you my daily labors, my every action, my every breath, and with all my love and every beat of my heart, grant that today and every day I may heed your inspirations in all things. Accomplish your will. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Holy Mary, Mother of God, Queen of the Rosary, pray for us. Saint Joseph, Guardian of the Holy Church and the Holy Family, pray for us. Saint Peter the Apostle, pray for us. Saint Mark the Evangelist, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so uh, I know I've been talking in the past about starting a Bible study. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to do the Gospel of St. Mark. I want to start with this introduction. All right. The earliest manuscript of the second Gospel are titled According to Mark. Uh, the Greek for according is kata Markon, kata meaning according, and markon obviously referring to the name Mark. This heading is not part of the original work, but was added by the early Christians. It summarizes the church's uniform tradition that Mark, a disciple of Simon Peter, wrote the second gospel. Although Mark did not write as an eyewitness of Christ's public ministry, he was a channel of apostolic tradition through Peter, who was his primary source of information about the life of Jesus. His association with Peter is evident in both the New Testament and the testimony of the early church. Within the New Testament, Peter refers to his companionship with my son Mark in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. And interpreters have noted that the general outline of Mark's gospel is similar to Peter's presentation of the gospel in Acts chapter 10, verse 36 to 43. Okay, outside the New Testament, several church fathers insist that Peter's authority stands behind the second gospel. Papias, one of the early church fathers, uh, 130 AD, describes Mark as the interpreter of Peter. While Irenaeus, A.D. 180, 
and Clement of Alexandria, A.D. 200, and Tertullian, A.D. 200, echo the same tradition. Few details exist about the life and character of Mark. He's known principally by his Roman name, Mark, Latin Marcus, but is sometimes called by his Jewish name, John, Johannan, Acts 12, verse 25, and Acts 15, verse 37. He is the cousin of the missionary Barnabas, according to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. More significantly, he was an associate of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, and a welcome companion on Paul's first mission, missionary journey, Acts 13, verse 5. For reasons unstated, Mark withdrew prematurely from the mission. And Acts 13, verse 13, creating an awkward situation that later became a source of contention between him and Paul in Acts 15, verse 36 to 41. At some point, however, Mark was reconciled with him and again became active in his ministry, since he is later present with Paul in Romans, in, I'm sorry, in Rome, and Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, and Philemon chapter 20, um, 24. According to the apostles' estimation, he, that is Mark, is very useful in serving me. This was in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 4, verse 11. Tradition states that after the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, Mark was the first to establish a church in Alexandria in northern Egypt. Okay, now the date. Two factors suggest that Mark completed his gospel before A.D. 70. Within one generation of the event, he records, first, the gospel itself points us in this direction. Mark, uh, Mark chapter 13, Jesus prophes uh, prophecies, uh, prophesizes the eminent destruction of the, of the Jerusalem temple. This was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the Romans violently destroyed the holy city. Mark, however, makes no mention of this as a past event, nor does he give detailed information about the catastrophe that would indicate he was writing after the fact. Second, prominent traditions in the early church date Mark's gospel in the 60s AD, even earlier, both a second century document called the Enter, uh, Anti-Marconite Prologue and Irenaeus AD 180 state that Mark wrote soon after Peter's martyrdom. This was in AD 67, a tradition that still allows for a date in the late 60s. Clement of Alexandria in AD uh, 200, on the other hand, mentions that Mark wrote his gospel before Peter's death. Still, Another witness, Eusebius, A.D. 340, fixes a date for Mark's during the reign of the Emperor Claudius, between A.D. 41 and 54. Although these varying traditions make it impossible for us to assign an exact date for the Gospel, they together suggest that Mark established his work sometime before A.D. 70. Destination. Mark wrote his gospel primarily before Gentile, uh, I'm sorry, he wrote his gospel for Gentile believers in Imperial Rome. 
This is suggested by several considerations. One, Mark regularly has to explain Jewish customs that would be unfamiliar to his readers. Chapter 7, verse 3 to 4, chapter 14, verse 12. And second, he translates Aramaic, Aramaic words and phrases. Chapter 3, verse 17, chapter 5, verse 41, chapter 7, verse 11 to 34, and chapter 15 to 34. Three, he at times uses Latinized terms instead of their Greek equivalent. Chapter 12, verse 42, chapter 15, verse 16. Okay, historic climaxes with a confession of faith by a Roman soldier. In chapter 15, verse 39, it is likely, moreover, that Mark's audience in Rome was at this time a target of fierce persecution under the depraved Emperor Nero. From AD 64 to 68, his gospel then is written to remind Roman believers of the suffering endured by their, by their Lord and to encourage them to remain faithful during this time of trial. Now we go into the structure. Mark's gospel uh, resists a neat, clear-cut outline. As the narrator, Mark remains tucked behind his story and imposes no artificial structure on the traditions he has received. He is content rather to present the events of Jesus' life as he learned them. For, for the sake of convenience, however, the gospel may be divided into two major sections and two minor sections. See outline. The two major sections is chapter 1, verse 16, 8, and chapter 8, verse 30, chapter uh, 8, verse 31, and then 15, chapter 15, verse 47, comprises most of Mark's narrative and consists of various events that gradually builds in a momentum toward a climatic confession of faith. In the first movement, chapter 1, verse 16, and chapter 8, verse 30, the story culminates with Peter's testimony, You are the Christ, chapter 8, verse 29, a confession that stands out amid the surrounding confusion about Jesus' identity. Chapter 8, verse 28, similarly, the second movement chapter 8, verse 31, and chapter 15, verse 47, ascends gradually and peaks with the centurion's declaration, truly this man was the Son of God, chapter 15, verse 39. Okay, sorry. which also stands in contrast to the surrounding taunts leveled at Jesus. Uh, this we notice in chapter 15, verse 21, 29 to 32 and 36. The gospel's two minor sections, chapter 1, verse 1 to 15, and chapter 16, verse 1 to 20, are small in size but great in importance. The prologue, which is chapter 1, verse 1 to 15, sets the stage of Jesus narrating the preparations leading up to, um, I'm sorry, sets the stage for Jesus narrating the preparations for leading up to his public ministry. The epilogue, chapter 16, verse 1 to 20, crowns Mark's story with the account of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, bringing to climax the gospel of Jesus Christ.
anticipated since the beginning. This is chapter 1, verse 1. Theme. Mark paints a portrait of Jesus that is vivid and dynamic, focuses most of his attention on Jesus' mighty works. Apart from two lengthy sermons, this is uh, found in chapter 4, verse 1 to 32, chapter 13, verse 1 to 37, Mark de depicts Jesus as an active healer, exorcist, continually on the move, a feature that evangelists accounted by his using the word immediately over 40 times in his mere 16 chapter. In addition, Mark's gospel engages the Christian reader with a number of rhetorical questions and statements that particularly the story, what is this? A new teaching. Chapter 1, verse 27. Why does this man speak thus? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Chapter 2, verse 7. Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Chapter 4, verse 41. But who do you say that I am? Chapter 8, verse 29. And what I say to you, I say to all. Watch. Chapter 13, verse 37. These statements address the attentive reader much as they address the character in the story. They invite us, invite every believer to look at Jesus with the eyes of faith, embraces him in hope and imitate his heroic love. The content of Mark's story revolves primarily around the identity of Jesus. Two aspect figures uh, prominent, Jesus' secret and his divine sonship. One, secret. In Mark, Jesus often attempts to conceal his identity as the Messiah because of the great possibility that his contemporaries will mis misunderstand his mission. During the New Testament themes, many in Israel expected the Messiah, but to liberate them from oppressive rule of the Romans. For this reason, they awaited an outstanding royal and military figure to subdue their enemies and reestablish their earthly kingdom of David in Jerusalem, chapter 11, verse 10. Jesus distanced himself from this from these popular but mistaken aspirations and instead works to conceal his uh, messianic identity. Okay, we're almost there in the end of this introduction. To avoid confusion about his ministry, when an unclean spirit attempts to publicize his identity, Jesus silences them. Chapter 1, verse 25 to 34 and chapter 3, verse 12. When men try to announce Jesus as the miracle worker or Messiah, he orders them not to. In chapter 5, verse 43, chapter 7, verse 36, chapter 8, verse 26, and then chapter, uh, then I'm sorry, it goes into, from I'm sorry, from chapter 8, verse 26 to 30, and chapter 9, verse 9. Far from embracing the role of a political leader, Jesus labors to, rec to re reconfigure and the messianic expectations through his example of servanthood and suffering. The true Messiah liberates God's people from the burdens of Satan, sickness, and sin, not the yoke of an early uh, earthly empire. Chapter one, verse twenty-seven uh, to thirty-four. Chapter uh, and to forty-one, and then you have chapter two, verse five to seventeen. 
and chapter uh i'm sorry t- t- 5 to 17 and chapter 3 verse 5 to 10 and chapter 5 verse 41 and chapter 7 verse 37 sonship the divine sonship of jesus is also leading them in mark in mark it could be said in fact that recognizing Jesus as the divine Son of God is the goal of Mark's gospel. Ironically, Jesus' sonship and incarnation are mysterious, hidden, mysteriously hidden from most of the gospel's character. Despite repeated suggestions and hints pointing in, the, in this direction as the narrator, Mark introduces Jesus from the outset as the son of god chapter 1 verse 1 the demons are aware of it chapter 3 verse 11 5 verse 7 god the father twice proclaims it in public chapter 1 verse 11 9 verse 7 and jesus himself affirms it in no uncertain terms in chapter 14 verse 61 to 62 only in the at the crucifixion is the sonship of Jesus fully recognized as he surrenders his life with love for to the Father? It is here that a single gospel character, a Roman centurion, confesses Jesus as the Son of God. Chapter 15, verse 39, Mark's gospel proclaims this mystery of Christ's sonship in story form and seeks both to inform and challenge readers with this central truth of the gospel okay i'm gonna stop here for a minute and i'll be right back all right so we read that introduction and that was from the uh ignatius catholic study bible uh it has commentary notes and study questions uh the revised standard version second catholic edition and uh, I thought that was pretty helpful right there. Now, um, I chose the, the Gospel of Mark because it is compact, it is shorter, and it's a good launch pad uh, to go into Catholic Bible study. Now, how am I going to go about it? I will, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go with it. I'm not going to worry too much uh on on trying to uh prepare um too many notes because really what's going to happen I'm just going to drive myself crazy trying to um set up those notes and everything I think along the way we're just going to um uh, re pray and uh, use our own reflections and use commentary. And if I have to, maybe I will look through other commentary to see and build up on it. Stuff that's more difficult. We'll just go through it. Um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says that uh, for um, for sacred scripture, that in Article 109, in sacred scripture, God speaks to man in a human way. And to interpret scripture correctly, the reader must be attentive to what the human authors truly wanted to affirm and to what God wanted to reveal to us by their words. So 
as I as we read this, one, God understands our limitations. The scriptures, the Bible, was was created, inspired, and created by God with us human beings in mind. All right? It wasn't written for intellectual people alone. As a matter of fact, my experiences, as, as I've noticed through the years of my conversion from, from 1997, most scholars uh, lose their faith. They go in there with a very high intellect, high IQ level, and they begin to sort of like disdain the, uh, the scriptures because of their intellectual vanity, their intellectual pride. You know, it begins to sort of like the faith, not just, it just happens with Catholics, it happens with Protestants, and I'm sure it happens with, with Orthodox scholars as well. And it was what even more fascinating is that you have even atheists who make a career out of, uh, you know, uh, biblical scholarship. It's, it's really funny. Now, God designed this, put this together using prophets, oracles, using even some that may have been even illiterate. I find that fascinating. And even some that might have been, um, you know, priests, uh, and, and spoke to the world through them. All right. I mean, that's, you know, using their faith, using their, the, the times that they lived in the style of language, the modes of speech, the, the, the poetic, uh, expressions and idioms and, 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 and proverbs that they that, that they used he he used their experience he used their tragedies he used uh the the times that they live in jeremiah lived at a time where it, you know it was practically it to, to him and his world it was the end of a world the temple was going to be destroyed by nebuchadnezzar jesus and the apostles lived at a time when the world was getting ready to change and Jesus came into our world. He came into a world with political uh, turmoil. He came into a world with, you know, when, when things were about to change. I mean, the empire of Rome and the world was changing. In, in, in a few short years, like from the time of his crucifixion, just over 40 years, the temple will be destroyed. And an entire culture and civilization will be disappearing off the map and only only archaeologists can dig them out to, to read them. And I find that fascinating because the Son of God came into a changing world that was going through dramatic changes, political changes. We are going through changes. We don't know what we're going to be seeing 10 years. We didn't even know we were going to, 10 years ago, we didn't even know this pandemic was going to happen, Right. When 9-11 happened, we thought the whole world was going to end in New York, right? That's, that's, that's the kind of world Jesus came into. We can picture that. Uncertainty, 
God came into this world to speak to us. All right, so in um, Article 110 of the Catechism, in order to discover the sacred author's intention, the reader must take into account the conditions of their time and culture, the literary genres in use at the time, and the modes of feeling, speaking, narrating, then current. For the fact is that truth is differently presented and expressed in various types of historical writings, in prophetical, poetical texts, and in other forms of literary expression. I think that says it all. We just... I just pretty much expressed it. But, this is Article 111, but since the sacred scripture, uh, sacred scripture is inspired, there is another and no less important principle of correcting interpretation uh, or explanation without which scripture would remain a dead letter. Sacred scripture must be read and interpreted in the light of the same spirit by, by the same spirit whom it was written. Now, the word, the same spirit, spirit is capitalized, it's Holy Spirit. In other words, God was with them. God was with them to guide the, the sacred authors through the, the method of writing. He was using their experiences, which is which we already said it. He, their experiences, their conditions, the turmoil, God was with them. And so therefore, the same Holy Spirit that guided them to, to write this, to go through the... It, scripture is not just a letter. It's not just ink on paper. Scripture is also an experience. It's, it's divine revelation is a life experience. The Word of God is not just a letter, not just a printed page. It's God speaking even now through us, as we live the script, live revelation, God speaks to us. He's living in us through revelation. And that's something that I think a lot of, a lot of Christians, Catholics included, we limit everything to just a page. Christ was the incarnate word. He was alive and he was living and he was experiencing a, a human experience. History. He is the Lord of history. He is the Son of Man. He, you know, nobody knew he was God except his mother and St. Joseph. Nobody in Nazareth knew it was him. He sat there in that synagogue every single day. He got up and worked every single day for, uh, for, for years. He was going out to making a living. He was, he, you know, he was going into the cities, uh, getting odd, getting jobs. He was teaching, preaching. You know, people have a hard time sometimes, you know, comprehending that. You know, he wanted to he wanted to live and experience life as a human being. You know, a friend of mine said once he didn't need the experience of a human of human experience because that wasn't necessary. He was God. But then he took on a soul, a mind of a man. Right? The heart of a man, the body of a man, the instincts of a man, the curiosity of a man. And he was both God and man. And he lived through a human lifetime and died as a human being. But he was still God. 
So this is something we have to understand. Scripture is a living experience. It's divine revelation is a life living thing. It lives in us. All right. We go to Holy Communion and we receive Jesus' body and blood, soul, divinity in us. But I think like one priest said once, we stifle the word of God. We keep the word of God at certain certain times at bay. We don't want we don't want the word of God to completely take over us. And I think that's bad. All right, let's continue. 112, Article 112. One, be attentive to the content and unity of the whole scripture. Okay, it has here under word attentive on top of it, thinking or watching with care. Be, uh, be especially, uh, be especially attentive with care to the content and the unity of the whole scripture. That means the whole Bible, the whole Bible. Okay, the whole Bible. We have to be attentive. Okay, different as the books which comprise it may be, Scripture is a unity by reason of unity of God's plan, of which Christ Jesus is the center and heart, open since his Passover. Okay, so everything, everything has to be considered. No matter how different each book was written, the one unity of the whole, all of it is divine inspiration divine guidance the the holy spirit is the one god is the one that unites all of it together so we should consider that all right the it goes on to say here the phrase heart of christ can refer to sacred scripture which makes known his heart closed before the passion as the scripture was obscure but the scripture has been open since the passion since those who from then on have understood is consider and dis- consider and discern in what way the prophecies must be interpreted. The road to Emmaus comes to my mind. Remember as they were walking on the road to Emmaus, they didn't know it was Jesus. Remember how he opened the scriptures to them. He, he began to interpret them. Beginning with the, the, the books of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets and then it led to the high point when he sat at table with them. He took the bread, blessed it, and broke it. And they knew him in the breaking of bread. They knew him in the Eucharist. So it has to be part of us. You know, one of the interesting things about that show, The Chosen, it, it makes it clear that scripture was part of their daily lives. And just as much as we don't just have scripture, we have the Eucharist. So when we ponder scripture, when we ponder and meditate throughout the day of our lives, God, Christ is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. It, he's guiding us through it. He want, God, God wants us to make his word, his presence, part of our daily lives. One of the interesting characters, um, um, there's a character, Philip, which is one of the apostles, is talking to Matthew. And Matthew wants to know how to memorize scripture the way some of the apostles did. And he gave him a passage. 
from Psalm 139, I believe it is, verse 8 or 9. If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my de- my bed in the depths, you are there. And he explained to Matthew, no matter how high you rise in your intellect, God is there. If, you as- if I ascend to the heavens, you are there. And no matter how deep I go into the depths of despair and darkness, he's still there. You can't escape him. Imagine pondering that every single day. That's how these people did it. And that's, I think, is important. That's important. So this is something we have to remember. God is always with us. Christ is with us. Okay, so that's I think is is something we can understand. So that ever since the Passover, ever since his passion and resurrection, he is with us. That's what he was showing those two disciples on the road to Emmaus is that they will find him in the breaking of bread and among their brethren. That's another thing. Scripture is not just a private matter. It's also, it can be very much a community matter, a Christian community. Your brethren, God can speak to us through our brethren, through a nun, through a fellow, a, a fellow lay person, through a priest, through a deacon, through everyone, a child, all right, the sick, the least among us, God, God speaks to us. All right, let's move on. Article 113. Okay, um, read scripture with the living tradition of the whole church, as I said just now. According to a saying of the Father, sacred scripture is written principally in the church's heart rather than in a document and records, for the church carries in her tradition the living memorial of God's word, and it is the Holy Spirit who gives her the spiritual interpretation of Scripture, according to spiritual meaning, uh, spiritual meaning which the Spirit grants to the church. Now, here's something. We go back to what we read in 112, uh, the part here. The phrase... A group of two or more words. Uh, Sorry, this is uh, the part here, the the phrase, the heart of Christ. What did we just read here? Scripture is written in the heart of the church. All right. Um, Okay. Written principally in the church's heart rather than in documents. So heart of Christ can refer to sacred scripture and to the heart of the church. So you see, we have to use the tools that the Holy Spirit has given us through uh, given to the church, we can use it in our daily lives, because we meet Christ in liturgy. As Catholics, we're not Protestants. Okay, we, when we're in liturgy, we're in prayer. And when you know we the the scriptures open up even more. I know sometimes not every homily is great, not every mass is you know unfortunately not every. Liturgy is great because, um, uh, you know, the way some people make three-ring three circuses of it. But let's let's always stick with the traditions of the church. Even though we might not get anything out of the liturgy we go to, we still live in the heart of the church. Even, even when we don't go to Mass every single day, we still can hear Scripture in the heart of the church. All right, let's go to 114.3. We just get to point one. Point one was 
Be especially attentive to the content. Point two, read scripture within the living tradition of the whole church. Now, point three, 114, article 114, be attentive to the analogy of faith. Comparisons of things. By analogy, comparisons of things. By analogy of faith, we mean the coherence of truth of faith among themselves and within the whole plan of, of revelation. So, analogy, um, compare events of scripture. You can compare modern events, but always go to the scriptures and you know, to whatever the poetry, the phrases, it doesn't matter. Always, always stick within the tradition of the church. Uh, uh, how the church interprets analogy, how the church interprets um, the law, how the church interprets prophecy. The church is oh, the church can guide us through all of it. Okay. So now we're going to go into the senses of scripture. We just did uh, three points. The first three points. Be especially be, be, pay special attention to the content and unity of scripture. Pay special attention to the attentive attention to the 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 unity of the whole of scripture. Point two: read scripture within the living tradition of the of the whole church. Okay, read scripture within the living tradition of the whole church. And point three: pay special attention to the analogy of faith. So, uh, that's all there. So, um, again, pay special attention to the unity, unity of scripture, unity of scripture, pay special attention to, uh, the tradition of scripture, be interpretation and tradition of scripture and pay a special attention to the analogy, which is again, unity It's pretty much almost like the same thing. All right, so let's move on from there to the senses of Scripture. All right, the senses of Scripture, Article 115. According to ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of Scripture. The literal, the spiritual. Okay, those are the two uh, senses of Scripture. The latter being subdivided into, into the allegorical, Moral and anagogical. Uh, anagogical being, being an explanation. Uh, anagogical sense. Okay, so um, the literal basically will focus on the historical. And the allegorical is symbols and meanings. Uh, in a sense, uh, symbols and meanings... And moral, obviously, and how to act and how to behave. And anagogical as based on an explanation. Let me see if I can just pull up the word here. Um, that always helps, right? Uh, anagogy. All right, hold on. Uh, it's Greek. Okay, they're not, they're not surprised there. Uh, sometimes spelled as anagogy. Anagogy is a Greek word suggesting to climb or ascend upwards. The anagogical is a method or of mystical or spiritual interpretation of statements or events, especially in scriptural exegesis that dictates allusions to the afterlife. Uh, okay, so that that's a good that's a good way of understanding it. Okay, so so that is basically leading us to heaven. 
our final destination. Okay, that's good to know this, right? So, all right, so then uh, allegorical, let's look at that. It's always good to look up these words, at least it gives you an idea, so you, you know, you know exactly what's, you know, what is trying to be said, what is being said to us. Uh, here it is, stories. Um, as a literary device, okay, that was, that was told to us in the catechism, pay attention to literary devices is a narrative in which a character, place, or event is used to deliver a broader message about, about real-world issues and occurrences. Authors have used allegory throughout history in all forms of art to illustrate or convey complex ideas and concepts in ways that are comprehensible or striking to to its viewers, readers, or listeners. I guess a good example would be uh, as Christ using parables. Uh, the sower who went out to sow. Um, the, um, the, this, the, the, king, the kingdom of heaven, or like say he's using stories like the prodigal son or the good Samaritan, right? Um, you know, or, uh, you know, like maybe he used, like, say, uh, new wine for new wine skin. You can't put new wine in old wine skin uh, or the mustard seed. Jesus used literary devices. He used uh, allegory. He used, uh, um, you know, parables and went to tell to tell stories to make examples to people. I think that's uh, you know you know you know it's it's obvious Jesus himself knew and how to use literary devices to catch his audience attention. Okay, sorry, the, the car horn in the background. Okay, let's look at again. I guess it'll, it'll help us. Um, literal is basic meaning. Okay, let's look at the word here. It's let's let's look it up. All right, um, adjective, okay, here. Taking words in their usual or most basic sense without metaphor or allegory. Okay, that makes sense, that, that helps there. Spiritual, okay, relating or affecting to the human spirit or soul as opposed to material or physical things. All right, um, like everlasting life on earth, holy land, continual growth. I mean, it makes, you know, it, it you know, so you see, this is um, literary devices. And obviously, it's been used throughout the whole Bible right from the beginning. Uh, I think we can say that, yes, the, the, the story in Genesis was both with... Uh, the creation of the world. We know Moses wasn't there to watch the world being created, but it's obvious that the Holy Spirit and Moses was given permission to explain the creation of the world, which was literal, using literary devices, allegory, metaphor, poetry, to explain it. How do you explain the creation of the world. How do you put it down to writing? Especially in the time that you live in. 
all right? It's obvious the people back then were not ready for, let's say, um, a scientific explanation, okay? But how do you, but do you use scientific explanation in, uh, with God creating the universe? No, obviously not. God is not a scientist and he's not gonna use a scientist, uh, scientific metaphors and language and formulas and physics. It's not a physics book. No, it's not, right? It's not a, a book that's explaining the stars, the map of the stars and everything and all the right gases coming together to create the Big Bang. He's not going to do that. The Bible, you know, God is going to speak to a broader, wider audience. You know, he'll leave the scientific study to scientists on their own good time. But here... He's speaking to all of us, including the scientists. And it's, he's speaking to all of us throughout all of history. The biggest audience, right, everywhere heard the story of creation. We've all been sitting in church. We've all picked a Bible at one point in our lives, and we read the creation of the world. So, yeah, God knew this. All right, so in accordance to ancient tradition, Article 115, one can distinguish between two senses of scripture, the literal, the basic meaning, the spiritual, all right, uh, development and growth of, uh, growth of the person spiritually, all right, which can, we can also say is morally, because that's the spiritual can fall into the moral, how to act, how to behave, inspiring the individual to greater heights of meaning of value that 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 is obviously what it means and that is divide the latter is divided into being uh subdivided into allegorical and moral um allegorical symbolism okay which can fall into the spiritual moral which we already said is also falls into the spiritual how to act, how to behave, inspire the individual to better, to greater values, to greater, to, 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 uh, to greater, um, uh, to greater, uh, I guess you could say participation, uh, to be a, a better person in society and to be, to be the kind of person that, uh, for God, to be, to be a, a true believer in God, to be a true Christian. Uh, the anagogical is the final destination, which is, I guess you could say, to greater heights, a mystical, to reach the greater heights of, of, of faith. All right. The profound concordance of all the four senses guarantee it. Okay, so literal, spiritual, okay. Um, then also says allegorical, and then it's moral and anagogical that's actually five but maybe in a sense the uh the moral can fall into any category really um sense of uh, four senses guarantees all its richness to the living reading of scripture in the church all right so article 116 article 116 the literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of scripture and discovered by exegesis, follow, uh, following the rules of sound interpretation. 
all the senses of scripture of sacred scripture are based on the literal it's grounded in the literal okay the spiritual sense uh, thanks to the unity of God's plan not only the text of scripture but also the realities and events about which it speaks and can uh, uh, can be uh, signs speaks in signs allegorical sense we can acquire a more profound understanding of events by recognizing their significance in Christ thus the crossing of the Red Sea is a sign a type of Christ's victory and also of Christian baptism the moral sense the events reported in scripture ought to lead us to act justly as st. Paul says they were written for our instruction the anagogical sense Greek anagogue leading we can view realities and events in terms of their eternal significance leading us toward our true homeland thus the church on earth is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem so okay so we um, we pretty much got it there it's almost really like five I don't know why they say four but it's really like five senses of scripture okay the literal the spiritual sense the literal sense the spiritual sense allegorical sense um, the moral sense okay and then you got the anagogical sense but like they said it's it said in there the spiritual is divided into two, in, into those two as well which is the moral sense and the anagogical sense okay all right so and then you have also obviously the allegor the allegorical sense and you know so we have it all there so um the immediate uh one article 118 a medieval couplet uh a uh a unit or two lines of poetry okay summarizes the significance of the four senses the latter speaks of deeds allegory of faith allegory to faith okay the moral how to act anagogy our destiny okay it is the text of ex uh, it is the task of exegetes those who study scripture to work according to these rules toward a better understanding and explanation of the meaning of sacred scripture in order that their research may help the church to form a f firmer judgment for of course all that has been said about the manner of interpreting scripture is ultimately subject to the judgment of the church which exercises the divinely conferred commission and ministry of watching over and interpreting the word of God. All right, so um, let me see here. Okay, but I would not believe in the gospel had not the authority of the Catholic Church already moved me. That this was this is a quote from Saint Augustine. All right, so we go back to. Uh, the three point the three launching points that we um, that we needed here okay um, point one remember that we, we, we talked about it earlier be especially attentive to to the uh, to the whole to the unity of whole script the whole of scripture and then there's the second point is read scripture within the living tradition of the church those are the three launching points and then the third part be attentive to the analogy of faith uh 
uh, coherence, the uh, the coherence of the of of, of the scripture, uh, comparing comparing events, okay, which is kind of like the unity, uh, comparing events. So you got um, the the be attentive to the whole of scripture. Uh, be attentive to the traditions of the church. And be it, and then the third part is, um, like we said, uh, analogy, comparing comparing scripture to scripture, and then we go into the census, which is the spiritual and the literal sense, the literal sense meaning uh, the historical part of the church, where the 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 the, uh, the historical part of the scripture, the time it was written in, the the political situations and everything, and then you have the spiritual sense. Uh, the unity unity of God's plan, uh, but then it can be broken up to remember the allegory, allegorical sense, uh, the poetic style of it, and then there's also the moral sense, which is also very important of how to act and how to behave, um, and then of course there's also the uh, anagogical sense, which is the 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 mystical heights uh, leading to salvation and everything. All these things basically help us into, um, you know, how to uh, read scripture. You know, kind of like a referee, make sure we don't go be far beyond uh, what you know what you know the, what is intended. Not to come up with our own fancy conclusions, like the way what happened with uh, Mr. Harold Camping. You know, he got obsessed with trying to figure out when the end of the world is coming. He got obsessed with um, numbers, dates, times. Um, and, uh, you know, he disappointed a lot of people. You know, you know, I think it would have been best for him if, let's say, you know, focus on, you know, try, not, not trying to reinvent the wheel. Not thinking that he had this, that it was his task to figure out when the end of the world is coming. And every single time he got it wrong, he just simply uh, redrew the finishing line further out, gave himself wiggle room. And a lot of people got hurt. A lot of people got hurt. A lot of people wanted to wanted to believe. There's a lot of people who followed him. There's some people who actually invested in, in, in him, gave up their jobs, sold their homes, cut off family members. They wanted to believe that they... They found the answer, and it happens with a lot of people, a lot of people, and they and, and and it was kind of sad. It was kind of sad because family radio suffered, the station suffered. You know, it suffered followers. A lot of people fell hurt. Some people, there there were even those who didn't want to give up, but a lot of people gave up a lot of things. They sold their property, they closed their bank accounts, they gave all their money, and that was and that was sad. That was very sad. Real faith doesn't cut you off from your family. Real religion doesn't cut you off from your family. Real religion doesn't make you um, hurt yourself. You know, doesn't make you hurt yourself. Yes, the apostles did leave everything that they had. There are certain circumstances and cases, but they didn't cut them off from their family. And I think in many cases, you can honestly say they were free to come and 
as much as they were free to come, they were free to go. They could have, you know, Jesus wasn't going to hold them back if they decided to go back to their former lives. Many of them did. But I think, you know, in cases where they really knew that they were, you know, that they found the Messiah, they were willing to invest in, in, and risk everything. And they did. So, um, so this is the, uh, what you can say, the, uh, the launch pad here we're going to do about um, Bible reading. And we're going to do that. We're going to focus on, we're going to use these, these methods for the Gospel of Mark. Right? And we're going to, um, you know, uh, learn how to um, read the Bible. Okay, we're going to figure it out. And we're going to, you know, we're going to learn what the Holy Spirit is saying to us in the Gospel of Mark. So I'm going to end it here, and when we get back, we'll get back with the Gospel of Mark, and we'll start reading it and uh, studying it, okay? So um, let's say a, a prayer, closing prayer, all right? I think uh, we pretty much got a good uh, start here. <laughs> I hope we uh, hope we were able to do we'll, uh, we're able to get through it. Okay, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is a prayer after reading scripture. Let me not, O Lord, be puffed up with worldly wisdom, which passes away. Grant me that love which never abates, that I may not choose to know anything but Jesus and him crucified. I pray you, loving Jesus, that as you have graciously given me to drink in with delight the words of your knowledge okay so you would mercifully grant me to attain one day to you the fountain of all wisdom and to appear forever before you before your face amen in the name of the father son and holy spirit amen god bless <laughs>